Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Anton Jäger. And my name is Luna Sebastian. And today we are speaking to Professor Samuel Moy. Moyne is currently a professor in law and history at Yale University. He previously held positions at Harvard and Columbia, receiving his PhD in history at Berkeley in 2000. His book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, is forthcoming with Harvard University Press, focalizing on the relationship between human rights, social justice, and the worldwide neoliberal moment. Welcome, Sam. Uh, thank you for having me. So conventionally, when opening up conversation with our interviewees, we tend to ask them for a brief overview of their academic career. But since you're already a well-established scholar within the field of intellectual history, we thought we'd do things a bit differently this time, and we'd ask you a more personal aspect of that career. <clears throat> Namely, we'd like to ask you about three books which have proven thoroughly inspiring to you during your trajectory as a historian, and which you consider foundational in your own career. Well, I, I pondered this question, and I immediately came up with two books, and I'm going to add a third more. The first book that I would cite, and it really had a tremendous impact on me at a, a young age, was by someone who's probably unknown or, or forgotten, named Amos Funkenstein. He was an, an Israeli who taught in California for most of his career. He did his PhD in Germany and he was actually a medievalist. And he wrote a book called Theology and the Scientific Imagination from the Middle Ages to the 17th Century. I think it's the, the most profound work of intellectual history I've ever read. It is a high intellectual history trying to understand how thinking about God in theology led to secular tools of analysis that uh, remain today. And one of my first articles was actually just trying to reconstruct the arguments he made about where our understanding of history in the modern times came from, which he claimed, even for the most secular historian today, um, had emerged from a millennium of Christian thinking about the script of history through which God is, is working and he even claimed that our sense of contextualism, which has, you know, one of its homelands at this uh, university, thanks to Quentin Skinner, could not have come about but for the theologically induced sense that periods in history are different, not just in their rulers, but in their most basic meanings. And he showed, I think, brilliantly across a number of such examples how we may claim that we're secular in, in, in our conceptual approach to a reality, but that our tools, at least, could only have come about or did come about, at least, through some kind of secularization process. So I've, I've relied on, on his genius in, in this kind of account um, heavily in, you know, a lot of my own subsequent work. I, I do lesser things over, 
you know, time periods that are usually much more constrained than in his book, which in spite of the tub subtitle went from the classical period to the 20th century. But I cite it first because it had a huge impact on me. And I, I also because it's so little known. And I think, you know, everyone who's listening to this should rush out and, and acquire a copy. Next, I'll cite a book by a real mentor of mine. So I, I should mention that I knew Amos Funkenstein only very briefly. He was teaching at Berkeley when I arrived as a first-year graduate student, but he soon died prematurely of cancer. And I didn't go to study with him. I just, like a number of other students there at the time, happened across him. The same was true of my mentor in law school, whom I only got to know once I had gone to law school for a year and then quit and returned to finish my law degree at Harvard. His name is Roberto Unger. He's still living. And uh, he's had a tremendous impact on me as well. I would cite his book, which is called What Should Legal Analysis Become, as probably the, the book that's had the biggest impact on me as a legal scholar rather than an intellectual historian. And probably, again, an unrecognized uh, masterpiece that I would rank at the very top of all the books written about law in any field in the past half century. What's significant about it is that Unger in this book tries to make a series of analytical points about how modern times have, have allowed us to think about the law in new ways as giving people more and more control over their self-made society. But he also links these kinds of arguments to a democratic political agenda claiming that so far, in almost all ways, the law has barely registered the appearance of, of democracy in modern times and that it's the task of, of legal thinking to take it a bit further. I think I'll cite last, although there are so many great books, Michel Foucault's History of Madness, which was not Foucault's first book, but uh, it was one of his earliest books. And what I like about this book is that it explodes the genre of professional history writing by forcing historians to think of themselves in part as creating works of art, which few of us even try to do, and mostly, if we do try, fail. But it it is a book that I think is is pre-genealogical in, in kind of the, the way we, we talk about Foucault's own methodology over the course of his career, but is one of his most successful and one in which you really get a sense of the core vision that did animate Foucault's thinking from the beginning to the end. Mainly because like Funkenstein's book, which is actually kind of covering a similar period or concentrated on a similar period, it reminds us of how contingent many of our results in, in modern thought are, and thus could become uh, somewhat different. And in a way, these three books are related because it's Unger who says this genealogical process is far from over. The difference is that Unger thinks we can take much more intentional control over our history and that we should, we should care about 
the kind of accidental genealogical past uh, through which we've been brought about precisely because we can think of exerting more control over it in some, you know, indefinite future. Of course, you've been a prolific writer yourself. Your forthcoming book, which is called Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, draws on the themes that you first put forward in one of your previous monographs called The Last Utopia. And in a recent interview, you stated that your previous accounts, and I quote, are not as critical as much as deflationary, and only in response to untoward enthusiasm that swept many people, the morality of the end of history. And you go on to say, human rights movements, as we know them, are good as stigma, but bad at solutions. And... I do not see these as critical points. No one would say that it is a critique of a hammer to say that it is not the only tool you need. And how do you think the sentiment feeds into the work that you've done in your last book? So, you know, like my my mentors, the the authors of those books, even though, you know, obviously I never met Foucault, I think of myself as a genealogist who's working with much narrower topics. But with the same, you know, goal in mind to reveal to ourselves the the contingency of commitments we have treated as natural and necessary for the sake of, you know, free self-creation and a kind of society in which that's much more common individually and collectively than it is today. And everything I've done in the field of human rights has has been to suggests that human rights are part of a defensible good, but a, a tiny part, a much smaller part than has been conventionally suggested. And that once we recognize how minor a feature of a defensible political program they are, we can really turn to fill in the rest. Now, in the early book that you mentioned, The Last Utopia, um, I was focused maybe excessively on, on chronological debates about when it was that human rights, in the sense that we understand them, became a prominent uh, ideological language. Now, the reason was because I was interested in like the causal situation in which this mistake was made, which was not the mistake of thinking human rights matter, you know, the list that we have in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 or some successor document, but rather overstating how much of a defensible political program they represent. And in the first book, I tried to suggest that not only that this turning point was in the 1970s, but that it led people into a particular kind of political engagement and ideological framework, which tended to be on the minimalist side. It defends a few uncontroversial principles, but doesn't engage in the kind of more maximalist political contention or struggle that had been characteristic of most modern ideologies, including liberalism itself in the 19th century when it was a minority creed and, and faced so many opponents. What I think I missed in the first attempt to write the history of human rights is the context of 
distributional ethics and political economy, as a couple of critics pointed out. So when I decided to write this book, I asked myself how I would change the story if I took those features seriously. I don't really change my chronology very much, but I look at things differently and relax the sense that I gave in The Last Utopia that, if you like, human rights come out of nowhere in the 1970s. So because that was my thesis in The Last Utopia, I represented the whole prehistory of the 1970s as sort of insignificant. Um, as if it was not what we're looking for if we care about human rights. So the 1940s, to just take that you know, example, since that's when the Universal Declaration was born, I claimed that it may have been that there were a few people who wanted to create human rights then, but it failed or not enough people bought in. What I think that neglected, although it's not wrong, is that we, we really want to know how human rights even as a subsidiary language fit in some political creeds uh, and social movements that people did notice. And I think in The Last Utopia, I, I gave the correct sense that before the 20th century, human rights were part of the creed of, you know, liberal revolution and the search for citizenship and sovereignty. What what taking distribution seriously meant in this new book is a change in the narrative of the 20th century. Maybe looking back a bit to the French Revolution when the first welfare state was founded by the Jacobins, but then looking at the middle of the 20th century, the 1940s in particular, not for what was lacking, this project of international human rights, but rather for the way in which those who cared about human rights were most apt to connect them to um, something that people really did care about at that time, which was the invention of social citizenship and the welfare state with the result of a new modicum of a materially egalitarian citizenship. So the question is then, what happened after that? What happened? And my suggestion is not that the rise of human rights as we know and pursue them in the 1970s is a bad thing, but that the acquisition of that little piece of a defensible political program occurred while we've, we incurred massive losses on other fronts and above all on the distributional front so that human rights succeeded while neoliberals were changing the world. And this is, I think, a pressing topic to think about because it's not that human rights activists somehow abetted or caused the neoliberal age, but because they fooled people into thinking they had all the goods rather than some of them, or even a tiny number of them, people missed the point of what was happening and in particular lost the understanding that human rights themselves were only possible to pursue within a larger package that I believe should prominently include a commitment to material equality. Now, the exciting thing is that in the 1970s, there was also a, a new set of voices from the global South that had raised the program of the welfare state to the level of the world. During the 40s, you know, the welfare states were the imperial powers, and nothing happened in between the 40s and the 70s to 
moderate global inequality, actually it got worse. So decolonization, in a sense, inserted a new chasm in between the rich and the rest on the world stage. And what, was, what is, is tragic is that once the post-colonial South proposed that this is immoral and a real program ought to be about remedying that hierarchy, all we ended up with is human rights which in real political terms were often a project about stigmatizing the post-colonial state, uh, sometimes for good reason, but as if the post-colonial state had no important ethical ideas to contribute to the way the world is run. So I'm trying to, let's say, call for those who believe in human rights to redeem their principles for whatever they're worth from their neoliberal companionship for the past half century for the sake of a program of, of larger justice. So yeah, perfect. Following up on that previous answer, your focus has mainly been in the work you mentioned on human rights as a discourse of rights. So the flip side of rights, one might say, is of course duties, and it is within that terminology of duty that humanity, which is now translated into human rights, has been articulated. So we were wondering what may intellectual history of humanity as a duty look like? So what openings and alternative itineraries might it represent? And might the reconstitution of humanity as a duty, which you mentioned in a sort of more ambitious project for material equality, mean for our current political discourse? It's a great question. And I, I do plan to do some writing about this someday. All I can do now is give a sketch of, of what I guess you know, the answer is. The first thing to say is, you know, rights have always been haunted by the charge from the youthful Karl Marx that they're a recipe for a libertarian society, a claim on behalf of egoistic man, as Marx put it, and therefore that rights have to be abandoned for the sake of collective interdependence and integration. Now, I've never believed that claim, and in fact, in the new book, show that rights are flexible and there are such things as economic and social rights, and rights were a subsidiary language of this egalitarian welfare state. But I became even more convinced in writing that we have spent way too much time on the history of rights, where, to the best of my knowledge, there's not a single book about the history of duties over the long or short term. And the question is then, what would that history look like? Now, of course, there are lots of people have been for all of modern times who are nostalgic for a pre-modern world of duties. All religions are, have been about imposing duties on their adherents. My religion, Judaism, even has a whole doctrine called the commandments and thinks about the reason for all 613 of them, why each one is justified in different ways. And all religions, especially if they tend in a, a legal direction and and prize legal regulation like both Judaism and Islam put obligations at the very center. Pre-modern political morality did so as well, mainly because war was so central and war required even citizens of free states to serve the state and sacrifice themselves for it. So in so-called civic republicanism, uh, classical republicanism, the ideology is, of duties is likewise central. 
And I would say that aside from those who want to adhere to religion for private purposes or their own salvation, most of us have been convinced that they don't get a public role. And most of us, after World War I in particular, have been convinced that civic or classical republicanism is an ideology of, of service to the state that doesn't end up advancing our modern freedom and equality. So the question is, do we have to decide in the end that modern freedom and equality forbids a discourse and about duties, a robust sense of what's required of us, not just what we get? And I want to argue that no such choice is required. In fact, if we look at the 19th century into the 20th, we find a very strenuous attempt not to propound rights. After all, between the 1790s and the 1970s, there were very few premier theorists of rights. But we do find a big attempt to reinvent duties for a new modern age in recognition of the fact that you can't be free on your own and you especially cannot be equal on your own. What, what's required of us is to build a society that creates these and maintains them. And I think there's a tradition of folks who understood this and tried to reinvent morality and politics in the name of such a vision. The first and most important, I believe, was the Italian nationalist and internationalist, for that matter, Giuseppe Mazzini, whose main book is entitled On the Duties of Man. It's, it's not believed or known, at least, that he read Tom Paine's The Rights of Man, but whether or not he did, he answered it with a contending doctrine. If we take one of the harbingers of the welfare state, T.H. Green in this country, Oxford moral philosopher, he also claimed that we can't have a welfare state unless we have a new rationale for duties. It's not the old Christian one. It's one that's about solidarity and interdependence. Finally, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, he was a avid reader of Mazzini. And like Mazzini, although in this case in the 20th century, Gandhi propounded a theory of cosmopolitan duty. And of course, that's especially relevant to our age because it's not as if we'd want to answer the exaggerated importance of human rights universally with a bunch of local communitarian doctrines. So my interest in duties is not like the old communitarianism of Alistair McIntyre and Charles Taylor and Michael Sandel, because it's one that sees that the votaries of duty were as a cosmopolitan as the cosmopolitans of our day. Now, we have to admit that the most sophisticated cosmopolitans understand that they're committed to duties too. If they believe in rights, there are so-called correlative duties. But I think that the great theorists of duty were much broader-minded than most of our theorists of rights because they recognize that most of our duties don't follow from other people's rights. Some of them do. Many may do. But we may have other agendas. For example, some kind of sense of material equality in our societies that don't exactly or are not best theorized as following from a right of individuals. 
And of course, the same is true for all kinds of other contextual demands that we may have, like a clean, safe environment, which has to be the setting for any experiment in a free and equal society. And that kind of environmental concern may also involve a lot of duties that are cosmopolitan because the environmental problem is worldwide and can only be solved at that scale. So for all these reasons, I'm, I'm very interested in trying to figure out beyond this, these three na- names I've given, Mazzini, Green, and Gandhi, what a, a full-fledged canon might look like and whether we can revive this modern heroic attempt to reinvent the classical and religious ideology of duties for repression's sake, for the new sake of emancipation. There was so much there, but I want to come back to something that you said earlier, which is chronology. And one may argue that your main, some of your main interventions in lecture history have come in the shape of postponements. And as, as we expanded, there's been a seminal contribution which argues that human rights don't date to the Enlightenment or even to the Holocaust, as been argued, but to a much later point in history. And does this reveal a preference for invention over inheritance, either in the philosophy of history or just in terms of interest? It's, it's a fascinating question. I think I would reject the claim that we should always have a bias for or look out for how belated our commitments are when we do their history correctly. Because it's just the case that a lot of things are old and enduring. You know, take the Catholic Church, even if we acknowledge that it's been reinvented from within serially all along the course of the millennia. But I do think it's very important when some of our commitments or practices are adventitious, i.e. they came about very recently, to convince people that history was made up in living memory and that their ideologies and practices not just could have been different, but were almost yesterday. And so maybe, you know, there's just, I have a personal taste for seeking out those ideas which can be revealed to be much more contingent than they thought. But that doesn't mean I have like a general commitment to the idea that everything out there is just created out of whole cloth in in recent years. That would be like this old theological doctrine called occasionalism, which held that if God is so powerful, it means he must create things all the time, even if they seem to remain the same. Some things have a staying power. It may mean we want to shake them, but I think we should acknowledge that reality is sometimes conservative and not just in a process of constant reinvention. However, I think that notwithstanding this fact, the only point of history could be to show us that we're free to create our society anew. I can't understand what other purpose there could be to studying our past, including to understand which, which parts are burdensome and harder to shirk because they're old or they're enduring than gaining energy to do it anyway if it's warranted. So I think modern times has shown that we really do get to make our social relations the way we want to make them and live together the way we want. And if, if we believe otherwise, it's because we, we haven't 
assume the courage necessary. So this is, to me, exciting, but it does mean that you need to encourage people to to see that they really should have good reasons for leaving things the way they are because the likelihood is that they've they've embraced them blindly just because they've been born into their ideas and practices. So you're yourself a regular contributor to a variety of uh, public debates outside of the bounds of academe, and you also have a very wide variety of intellectual interests. But we're wondering how do you yourself see the relationship between the contemporary public task of an intellectual, and more specifically that intellectual's professional and more academic work? It is a hard question, and I would say there's no general answer. I would be very uncomfortable with the conclusion that we dismiss people who stick to their lives in the library or the study and write books for a tiny and restricted number of readers and and urge them out into the streets. That would be disastrous because they're contributing so much, and of course it's their choice to do so in in their short time around here to um, put their maximum into the scholarly venture. I myself have a short attention span and don't like research. I do as much of it as is necessary, but I would rather have some impact with some larger set of readers just for my own self-gratification, if nothing else, and also to allow myself to change topics. I've tried to write books that are very different, although I've probably fallen into a rut recently, And above all, I've tried to never write the same book over and over. Although like any author and like any life, we're all very repetitious, no matter how hard we try to vary our responses to experience. So I would say you make your own choice. It depends on your temperament. It depends on the bet you're willing to make on the opportunities that you have before you and the cost that you pay. I do think that it would be nice if students from the first were educated into the sense that they can defensively write well for a broad audience and as defensively write narrowly for a specialist audience and that neither is superior. And especially today when students are less and less likely to get interested in the humanities. It seems that at least some people ought to be engaged in public relations for the sake of, you know, enlightenment, especially because the enlightenment has so many false friends who claim that it's just a program of science and not thinking uh, more broadly about the human condition and about emancipation and repression and kind of collective experiment in which all of our riches from even the deep past are continuing resources rather than old mistakes just to supersede and leave behind. So I would say there's no relationship that is obligatory, but that everyone should keep in mind that the collective survival of the of the humanities is at stake in our time like probably never before. Well, to finish our podcast, you've given us three books about human rights and a fourth book is forthcoming. And earlier books likewise orbit the theme of humanity in, in a way. What's next, if we may ask you that question? 
It's a fair question, and I've resolved even publicly, or at least on Facebook, that I plan to stop writing about human rights. But in order to take a small enough step away from my comfort zone, I think I'm writing a next book about the rise of humane war, especially as conducted by my country. So basically, I'm worried that we've engaged in a project of making military conflict, especially counterinsurgent military conflict more humane, but that we've made it difficult to see and therefore to end. And so it's tended to escape any constraints we might otherwise have imposed on it in time so that it's endless war or space so that rules we used to take more seriously for containing conflicts geographically tend to get challenged because the war seems moral or moralized. And so what I want to do is write a history of this and try actually, in this case, to reach a broader audience of my fellow American citizens, since I think Americans have been in the vanguard of the creation of something that's radically new in the annals of humanity, which is is a war that, if it's wrong, is not wrong because it's brutal. Most of the violence it unleashes is compatible with the extant rules of war. It only kills those who are legitimate targets, or because the rules allow this, it inflicts a certain defensible amount of collateral damage. Most times people have pushed back against war by showing how brutal it it in fact is. And of course, the war on terror has been brutal and, and is. It's also tempting to say that the rules that we've developed are wrong and conceal brutality rather than minimize it. I think that these are both valid perspectives, but there's this third perspective, which is in a way chilling, which is that humanitarians have helped armies and above all air forces to make the way they fight moral, winning popular consent for fighting by making it less visibly outrageous. And invisibly, it seems to allow those same militaries without humanitarian concern or dissent to engulf more of the world for longer. And so we end up in a place that you might say Foucault feared when he thought about prisons, a kind of world where there's no violence but there is panoptic control, which may be a sinister result. Thank you, Sam, for this immensely stimulating conversation. This was Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast, and of course we'll be back with a new episode soon. Thanks again. Thank you.